0: discover more compassionate
1: relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that.
0: Its power seems in a sky. everyone, welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast. I'm your host, Mexi, and today we have on the show someone who I have been talking about wanting to have on the show for a very long time, Connie Spence, aka Vegan Batgirl on Instagram, who is a founding member of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance and Liberation 360. And we're going to talk today about basically the pitfalls of consumer-based activism and where your taxes are going. We talk a lot on this podcast about the systemic nature of human and animal oppression and about how, you know, consumer-based activism or consumer-based vegan activism in particular is not enough to save animals within the broader exploitative global capitalist political economy. And, you know, we've, we've given a few examples over the years as to why that is, but now we're really going to dig into the laws that govern the animal agriculture industry. And like I said, where your taxes are going and, uh, For people who haven't really looked that much into it, it's incredibly, incredibly disturbing and, uh, you know, could be a bit disheartening for people who maybe don't have, you know, particularly developed leftist or anti-capitalist critiques of the system that we live in. But I think that, you know, this is such an important topic, Um, you know, it's clearly a passion of Connie's and and it completely makes sense as to why, because we need to face the truth of how the system operates in order to be effective in dismantling it. So I hope today that our conversation can shed light on that system and, and inspire everyone to think bigger with their activism, right? Take aim at the actual root causes of systemic oppression uh, to make sure that we effectively dismantle it together. So before we get into the episode, I want to thank dearly our new patron subscribers. Thank you so much to Connor McCauley, Beva Bell Harvey, Sydney Dallas Maine, Anna Alexander, Kimberly, Villanita, and Paste. I believe I've already shouted out some of you, but I just wanted to double check and double down on my thanks. <laughs> if you would like to become a sustaining member, please go to patreon.com slash total liberation, or you can give us a one-time tip or donation on our website, which is totalliberationpodcast.com. Or you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to us on. I absolutely love reading the reviews and it really does go a long way in helping uh, our podcast get more recognition. So with that said, let's get into the interview.
1: My name is Connie Spence. I am known on social media as Vegan Batgirl. I'll explain the social media handle name in a second. Um, And I am the founder of Agriculture Fairness Alliance, as well as a new education arm called Liberation 360.
0: Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while just because I've been following your work and it's just so important, right? I, I just don't think that anyone... I mean, you know, I guess a few people are speaking on it now, but before I had found your social media, I... I just hadn't, you know, heard anything about, well, I had heard it, but, you know, I, I didn't know the the, the details about, um, you know, how our tax system works, uh, the importance of lobbying, any of it. Um, so it's just fantastic to have you here. Uh, so just the first thing I, I did want to ask was about your your handle. So where does the name Vegan Fat Girl come from? And I'm wondering if you could talk about your journey into animal rights activism and the kind of disruptions that you've been engaged with.
1: For sure. So I think that... Um, if I could go back a little bit in time, I, I became vegan 11 years ago uh, in 2010. And around 2010 was still during people barely getting onto Facebook and barely having social media. Um, and so it hadn't really hit full mainstream yet um, across all age groups. And I think that at that time, I didn't even understand what like that there was vegan activism. I obviously would tell everybody my health benefits from going vegan and the reason I went, but I didn't really understand like how that there, that I could you know protest or do something on the street that would basically put more eyeballs on the subject. And so I think around 2013 and 14, I started noticing uh, groups of vegans gathering in different cities on facebook and showing off their their protests um, and i joined i think a fur march in new york city and then um, i joined i moved to los angeles and then joined several marches around that time now my um background is actually in advertising i went to college for advertising my career um, you know started in advertising and I got to be honest, like, while I think that it's good for us to get together and march and create our signs, I didn't feel like it fit my personality. I wasn't having conversations, and I felt like I was kind of yelling at people who might have been standing around, and they might not even have could have read my signs, but in my mind, I felt felt like they could. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's definitely good for people to protest, but I also think that We also need to diversify and be smarter about the way we protest to make sure that we're capitalizing off of how to communicate with people better. And so um, around that time, I think um, of different protests, uh, I think Trump won his first presidency and, um, or actually he won the presidency, I think it was 2016, and I saw a um, article that had uh, a big giant light that was shining on an Atlanta hotel and it basically said F Trump <laughs> and that light was like giant size I mean think of covering like half the size of the hotel and the article said this brilliant like display of activism was actually legal and no one could figure out how to shut the person down because he was Shining the light from a sidewalk, which is public property. The light wasn't vandalism, but, you know, cause it's a light and that the police didn't know how to shut them off. And I was like, oh my God, like I need to figure out what that is. <laughs> well, I figured out what it was <laughs> and I figured out how to do it. And, um, I started shining these giant light messages that basically, um, it's just a mixture of shadows and lights, right? Like the, the letters could be a shadow or they could be like a stencil Um, but, but they shine like 70 feet in diameter and I would put these all over walls. I would put these on the Los Angeles slaughterhouse. Um, I started putting the light everywhere and the, and, and the size of it being like 70 diameters, 70 diameters is like, or 70 feet in diameter. That is basically, you know, each letter is, is almost 10 feet tall, like the size of a door. Wow. Um, so you could see this from so far away, and the amount of eyeballs that could see it was huge. So in my mind, I felt like I found a very critical and um like amazing piece of activism that I could attract a ton of eyeballs. So it's like a, a sign during a protest, except if I put it next to a freeway, thousands of people can see it, and they can passively read it and. And what was happening is actually many of them would like exit off the freeways and they'd come park and they'd come talk to me. And I'd put messages on the wall that would say stuff like fact or fiction, 99% of every animal you eat is under six months old. Nonetheless, the point was that's where my handle came from, my social media handle. Um, People called it the Vegan Batman Light and then I turned into Vegan Batgirl. Um, Now I am... You know, over forty years old with a social media handle called Vegan Bat Girl, which I think is is <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> so, um, but I will say that one of the beautiful things about that activism is it fit my personality and made me want to do it. And so I think the message would be to any of your listeners: if you are doing forms of activism that you feel you know, you feel obligated to do and you want to do, but it doesn't quite fit your personality. I would just say, take a step back and find something that really does work for you. Because when you're, when, when it becomes aligned with your personality and you love doing it, it's like, it doesn't become, you know, taking time out of your day in the same way that, that, you know, perhaps um, some of the other forms of activism do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm my social media handles vegan girl. My name is actually Connie, though. Um, and I, I moonlight doing a vegan Batman light.
0: <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. And yeah, I think that's so spot on in terms of, you know, finding activism that really resonates with you and that you feel really excited about doing. I think that's so important. Um yeah, I, I think, you know, I I also like going to protests. And I, I go to a lot of them in Toronto. But um I, I know what you mean. I mean, sometimes it feels like you go and you have your signs or you have your chance and whatever. And you don't really know who's hearing you or who's seeing or who's caring, right? Like who's... There's no way to actually measure, you know, <laughs> who's actually internalizing this me- this message, and are we kind of getting anywhere? Um, and so I think that's why I also kind of gravitated towards, you know, YouTube and podcasting because at least it's like, well, here's here's a measure of how many people are listening to this, and here's, you know, people actually responding and sending me messages and, and things like that. So, um, but again, that's not to 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 knock protest, because I obviously, you know, think there's great value in that, and I definitely go out to them all the time. But yeah, I just think that's that's really great uh, that you brought that up. So, you know, in doing all of this work, I'm wondering, you know, we talk a lot on the show about consumer-based activism, about anti-capitalism and all the rest and how that's connected with, uh, you know, animal rights. Um, But, you know, what did you learn through doing this work that started to cast doubt for you on the effectiveness of consumer-based activism?
1: Well, on the direct activism side, I noticed that you know, there were a lot of behaviors that we weren't really considering and that one of them was convenience. You know, there's a huge convenience factor that exists. And, you know, there's just a lot of places that um, inexpensive vegan food doesn't exist. And so I know once you're all in and once you totally are in it for the animals, you'll rather starve than eat an animal. But for somebody who's not emotionally all in yet, I'd be talking to people in the streets because I didn't just do it in California I lived in Oklahoma for a time period too and I traveled to Texas um, Dallas and Houston and did the Batman light and I noticed a common theme with certain people and I think at first I wasn't being my most empathetic person was thinking it was excuses but now looking back on it I realized I was wrong and it's the fact that inaccessibility is a huge problem and it does prevent p- many people, many people from even attempting to try veganism. So I'm sure if they had the resources, they could easily try it and even go all in, but it d- it doesn't always happen in the same steps. Like people aren't always emotionally all in before they try vegan products. Some people would actually try many vegan products. They just, they just see how much it, it, um, deducts from their overall, you know, expenditures in a month and they have a hard time with it. And so, um, I think that was one aspect that, you know, activism sort of, uh, like it's something that being on the street, I realized that I was just blanket statement, like using blanket statements on people as though it was always an excuse and it wasn't. It's really easy to tell someone, well, you, you see how cheap rice and beans are. And it's like, come on, a family of four with kids, like you're really gonna have them eating rice and beans every day unless they are literally emotionally all in, which they're not, right? The kids aren't gonna be emotionally all in, all in right away. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect. The other is I started realizing how many children wanted to be vegan. Um, usually the children would be between like 13 and 17 and they couldn't be because- their parents either couldn't afford it or, and and I'll tell you why their parents couldn't afford it. If their parents had like three children and one was like, I wanna be vegan, the parent isn't gonna buy three of each or two of each product, right? If some are drinking regular milk and and she or he want plant-based milk, they're not gonna be able to afford to buy double of everything. Um, and the other part is, is that preconceived notions, that the parent might think that it's unhealthy and doesn't have the education to know that their child can be healthy doing that. So there were a lot of children that I saw and talked to that were actually really struggling. And many of them would, would have like what seemed like early eating disorders, not because they actually didn't wanna eat, but they didn't wanna eat animal products. And I, I really felt that that was um, probably pretty traumatic for them. Um, I met people that were newly in college and they were so happy that, you know, they would tell me like, yeah, this week is my first week of school and first week of fully being vegan. And it had everything to do with not living at their parents' house anymore and having their own allowances to pick what they wanted to eat. And so I definitely think just like, you know, when we do activism, we really need to listen to some of these trends because these trends can then spawn off some version of education or nonprofit that can help, you know, um, people with accessibility as well as, as children that desire to be vegan.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, even, you know, beyond that, right. It's like, we know at the end of the day that, you know, more people choosing more vegan products, you know, that's good, but it's, it's not, actually putting a dent in these industries, right? Um, Like you talk a lot about how, you know, laws aren't changed because at the grocery store, right? So, you know, it's, it's like... I think we talk on this channel a lot as well about how if we want to define veganism as a political stance and not just a grocery list, because, you know, of course the grocery list, um, you know, plays into it and plays into these industries, but there's so much more that we could be doing to actually dismantle kind of, you know, the laws and the system at play that just can't really be done through consumerism alone. Um, And so, as you said, you know, if, if people are really struggling to access this diet right it's i feel like we should tell them like well there's other activism you can do right there's other things that you can do to to really take aim at the animal agriculture industry is whether or not you can necessarily uh, uh, you know afford to be plant-based with your purchasing habits right um but yeah i think those are really really great points um sorry the sirens
1: i was just gonna pile on to what you mentioned i mean oh yeah Think about like consumerism versus laws in that lens, right? Even accessibility are things that laws can help and change. I mean, Mm -hmm. the accessibility of meat and dairy have everything to do with laws. They have to do with how heavily subsidized meat and dairy is. It makes, it makes a burger that is composed of a cow's life, right? And um, lettuce and bread cost a dollar and be on a dollar menu, super accessible in every neighborhood across, you know, the USA and a head of lettuce costs double that two or $3 at the grocery store. Cause it's not subsidized. Mm-hmm. And so the inaccessibility is an issue. So the inaccessibility to families overall, to all communities that aren't just close to big cities and to the children that I was mentioning that were wanting to be vegan, have um, it's very tied into, into laws. And the opposite side of that is when you're thinking about activism or you think about protesting or you're thinking about your consumerism, your consumerism is important, but it's not the only thing that drives, d- drives equality. It's not the only thing that drives change. I mean, imagine if we only bought female-centric products and said that that would give us equality like sense right like imagine if we wanted um greater indigenous rights and we're just like let's just buy these you know indigenous (laughs) products that might not even be made by indigenous people like we can't think about the the products that we see at these big stores and purchase them as like having the same persona as us so even when we buy vegan products for example like how do we really know that that this is really affecting animals living or dying? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it sounds good, but are we really tracking and looking at the numbers? Mm-hmm. And this, I guess, segues into probably the next conversation, which is how did I realize that maybe consumerism wasn't actually affecting the numbers like like I thought, like I thought it was?
0: Yeah. Well, so yeah, let, let's dive into that.
1: Yeah. So I was having a lot of success with the vegan Batman line. I really thought I was gonna be like, ha- like, I work full time by the way, like I, I'm in like um, the data industry, but I really thought I might like have a career in just Batman lighting around the country, you know, because I was having so much success with um, with so many people coming up and changing and um, just opening up a conversation in places that I don't know that it was always opened up. So ex- a great example is like Tulsa, Oklahoma, there wasn't anybody really doing activism there at the time at all. And so all of a sudden the this, this city sees this giant Batman light on their buildings, they're like, what is that, right? It's different if I was in New York City because people are like, we see everything all the time, (laughs) no big deal. But in a place like Tulsa, that conversation hadn't really been opened up. And so I would be, you know, supplying these people with cheat sheets that gave them all the restaurants and fast food places. Basically, I gave them a cheat sheet to show anything from super accessible to high-end places that had vegan options. And Um, A lot of the people that I was meeting on the streets were absolutely going and starting to, you know, adapt to at least a vegan-ish lifestyle if they weren't going all the way in. And I was like, simultaneously, I was looking at how well Beyond Meat was doing. Impossible Burgers were also starting to be, you know, in all these fast food chains I would go in little cities in Oklahoma and I would go to their grocery stores and 30% of their, of their milk shelves would be plant-based milk. And I'm like, we're so winning right now. Like we should be, we're saving a bunch of animals. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, huh? Like, you know, we say we save like, I don't know, a hundred animals a year by going vegan. And I would estimate You know we're we have anywhere from six to 15 million vegans in the united states we should really be saving animals at this point there should be you know a a deficit you know at least on on the agriculture side and i decided to go and look at the numbers and i was horrified because specifically with dairy we had one of the worst years they had i think it was 2017 or 18 One of the worst years they had, they were dumping milk out. They got one of the biggest bailouts they ever got. The next year they increased production by like 3%. And I was like, holy crap, why would they do that? They just like, they lost all this money and they got paid out. Why would they increase production? I started looking this over the years and then I started tying to get, I started realizing that there's been losses Mega stockpiles, dumping of of milk, and dumping and dumping, euthanizing animals, um, and bailouts almost every year, and they're still increasing production, which means that they're manipulating the system using our taxes. So, I was like, wait, this this means that supply and demand actually can't work if they're if their losses are just bailed out all the time. The other thing was, I actually found out. A lot of people don't even know this, and and we should. But the dairy industry in the United States is actually a fixed price system, and it's been that way I think since the '40s or '60s. There's like two different laws, but um, basically what that means is is that supply and demand doesn't really even dictate the price. They decide what needs to be produced that year, and they set a price, and if it if they get that great, if they don't, there's a ton of insurance policies that operate like gap insurance that just pays them anyway. So if they're getting paid anyway, then they're never getting hit by losses. So if they're not getting hit by loss, then they're never gonna reduce production. So that to me, like really was a gut punch and, and, but at, at the same time, it made sense. Like duh, of course an industry who, that basically has been around since the beginning of the country, because basically colonizing is just the livestock industry going to take resources from other people's land. Um, that duh, of course they've they've made every backup plan known to history to never allow their industry to decline, and it's not necessarily decline, but like lose money, right? Lose money or power. So. I started educating people and telling people what I found. And I was hoping, and I was I was like trying to figure out and tie together like how, how can we change this? Like the system's rigged, like how can we change this? Because the whole idea of going vegan is to save animals. And if, the, if my taxes don't allow it to happen and my taxes undermine what my consumer dollars do, how are we ever going to save animals? And I realized, the way to change to change this is to change laws, and the way to change laws in the United States, at least, is through heavy lobbying. And I was hoping there already was a lobbying group that existed that was a cons- like a more of a consumer public channel, so like a regular person um, who's vegan. That that such and such was the lobbying group that represented them, and there really wasn't one at the time. There was one that represented the vegan companies but not really one that represented vegan vegan people. And so, you know what? Like, I was so passionate at the time. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna help create one because I don't need to be the lobbyist. I just need a quarterback in the, the right lobbyist and quarterback in this message so people understand that this is the next level of what we have to do. We have to change the way our taxes are used and so, Um, I founded a lobbying group and yeah, the rest, the rest is history. I guess like, you know, the best thing I would say is when other, when people are listening or sort of hearing this is like the numbers suck, it sucks to hear it, but we can't be in denial for too long. And we have to, we have to move towards a solution. And the solution is to lobby, to change, um, to change these agriculture laws, lobby to change how heavy subsidies are used in favor of um, the livestock and dairy industry. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I I felt the same way. Because yeah, you know, you first go vegan, and you feel so fantastic. And you see all these memes, and you're sharing the memes about like, I saved this many animals this year, and this much land space and this much water. And then you realize that, that that's just not true and that, you know, the the world is consuming uh, more animals now than we ever have been. And of course our population has grown, but it's still, um, you know, disproportionate to that. So um, yeah, I mean, it definitely is a gut punch. Um, but then I think, you know, um, I think this is really, really great that so many people are, are pointing this out and, and realizing this, because I know a lot of leftists who don't take veganism very seriously, because they see it as just a grocery list, like they see it as, uh, you know, an ineffectual kind of trying to consume our way out of crisis. Um, but if we can show them this kind of activism and just, you know, have have them see that, like, no, there, there are so many ways to... Uh, you know, attack the animal agriculture industry, and that you know we have to if we care about the livability of our future, if we care about um you know anti racism you know anti colonialism um you know disrupting uh anthropocentrism and and all of that that's really just just destroying our planet and exploiting people. The world over then you know we we must take a stand against this industry and there's there's a lot of really effective ways to do that that you know anti-capitalists i think would, would get on board with right um so yeah i just think that's that's fantastic i'm i'm so glad that you were able to found this uh lobbying organization and and really get started on this work so, yeah, I mean, I guess you kind of touched on my next question about how we're all we're all implicated in these industries, because, as you said, uh, no matter what our consumer choices are, our tax dollars are really undermining uh, any any you know good that that might do. So uh, I guess I wanted to touch on the government bailouts, but uh, maybe we'll we'll talk first about, uh, you know, the white supremacy that's laden in this system. Um, and how this plays out in big agriculture. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. Um but uh yeah, maybe I'll throw it, throw it over to you and then um tell you what I've been thinking about.
1: Yeah, so he who controls the food controls the world in my opinion. And if you think about the United the creation of the United States and a lot of places actually, but specifically the United States, um, you know, basically the first uh Americans I guess um colonizers that came here were farmers and so I know it's easy to think that oh it's been so long that those farmers don't still control the country but let me tell you something the, and the only reason the Electoral College exists in the United States and I know that you're in Toronto so you may not know but the Electoral College is when you see a popular vote win in the United States, but the electoral vote give presidency to another candidate, even though less people voted, that's what, that's caused by the Electoral College. The Electoral College is basically representation, representation votes. Um, and it was originally designed so that the majority wouldn't always like, you know, win everything, right? <laughs> Shouldn't they? <laughs> Well, not if the majority... Well, so it kind of goes back and forth because it minorities would never get laws passed. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Always won, right? So it's trying mm. to create some sort of fairness. The thing is, is that the electoral voting system and the Electoral College is has been gerrymandered. Gerrymandering basically means that you've created borders around exactly what you want. Most people don't realize this, but the entire Republican Party in the United States is basically gerrymandered around farming communities and white farming communities. And so the only reason that Republicans even have power is because the food system has power and the agriculture system has power and it's so intertwined. And so um, I guess what I mean by that is like, you know, if you think about a state like Georgia, Georgia has a very populated city, Atlanta um sure savannah is fairly populated outside of that it's a lot of farming communities and these farming communities have you know high electoral electoral votes even several of them and they're and those elect those farming communities are typically you know very high in a white population almost homogeneously so several of them strangely enough have prisons in their cities and I don't know if you know this but basically to increase their electoral votes they use the populations of the prisons the the people in the prisons to increase their electoral votes even though the prisoners can't vote oh my god and it's I mean it's so rigged so the electoral college basically gives um the way that things are set up and the way that these farming communities are set up it really does give um, the same group of people that basically founded this country, power. And so that's why you see President, specifically Trump, I mean, he couldn't bail out and give more money to the farming community because by winning the farming community, you win all the electoral votes that are necessary. And so when the Republicans speak on things that you think sound really antiquated, like when they're really racist, when they're, you know, really anti um. Email, so I wouldn't just call it sexist because when you're like, start talking about a lot of uh, uh, bringing up abortion stuff again, you know, like, like dangling these carrots, a lot of the younger generation, even if they're conservative, aren't really about that. And so what, what these, the language that you're hearing is actually placating the, the old style, like white cowboy. That's it. just their personality you know what i mean so it's not even like the the larger population of white conservatives they're placating to the white farming community and i wouldn't say like small farmers necessarily i think these are more like um like the larger farmer co-ops and the, the giant family farms so family farms um when you hear someone say a family farm in the united states family farm a lot of times are like giant you know 20 30 nieces nephews and cousins sort of operations and so they operate like family they operate like large large farms but they have sort of the like when they when someone says well it's still a family farm people don't don't think it's as bad as like um you know like a CAFO. but the truth is Mm -hmm. it's still it's still pretty abusive um but nonetheless like Politically speaking, from the beginning of the United States, um, you know, white farmers basically took away native population land and then they and they redistributed it to white farmers. Um, those white farmers, many times, specifically in the South, owned slaves. Those slaves gave them free work um, to to create more land wealth. Uh, when slaves were free, slaves, because they were already farming, naturally started started their own farms, and many times um, the USDA, which is our United States Department of Agriculture, basically would prioritize giving loans and help and assistance using our taxes to help the white farmers, and they wouldn't give the same to the black farmers. So at best, white supremacy and farming went hand in hand because white farmers were watching the inequalities of that. And at worst, white farmers were actually stealing their neighboring Black farmers' land without any repercussion. And so when you hear about farmers who are fifth, sixth, and seventh generation farmers, their families lots of times were completely contributing to the inequality. And the inequality isn't just Oh, what you know? There are no more black farmers. The inequality means that black people today have lost millions and millions of acres of land and generational wealth, which is what puts can put them behind. In um, you know, generational wealth is really important because it puts you in a totally different socioeconomic condition. And so, at the end of the day, a lot of the um, socioeconomic condition that Black, Brown, and Indigenous people face today is a byproduct of loss of generational wealth from um, their ancestors. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, industrial agriculture, commercial agriculture was, I mean, that's inextricable from the dawn of capitalism, right? Like the enclosure laws were basically the dawn of commercial agriculture and the dawn of capitalism. And then that spread around the world through colonialism and imperialism and all the while, yeah, it's just, you know, land grabs, displacing indigenous people, stealing their land and then building generational wealth upon it and excluding, as you said, um, black people and the descendants of the slaves who actually enriched these white farmers by doing all the work on their land. So absolutely. um I mean, and then in the industry itself, right, it relies on migrant labor uh, for the most part or, or, you know, racialized labor because, um, you know, the conditions of work in these slaughterhouses are so absolutely horrifying and the turnover rate is so, so high. Um, And so there's just
1: also child labor. So our child labor laws in the United States don't apply to non-citizens and people don't realize that all the agriculture system needs is to bring A migrant family here and get the parent to approve their child to work and so they're getting free child labor too and completely legal wow yeah just absolutely unbelievable but Um, but mentioning that stuff kind of ties into the lobbying aspect like the big picture of the lobbying stuff that we do is to create fairness so that we can start seeing a plant-based economy but As we continue to scale, what I'd like to see is legislation that we start pushing for workers' rights, small farmers' rights, communities that live next to big ag operations, because they're typically um, communities of color totally getting terrorized by um, the waste that, you know, is, happens um, at these slaughterhouses and these CAFOs child labor laws is a big one. Like, I can't believe that everybody topically will talk about um, children and all these conspiracy theories with, you know, Biden and Trump and everything, but they don't care about child labor happening here, um, which is, which in my opinion is trafficking. Like, I believe that agriculture system is trafficking families into, you um, into like indentured servitude, and um, so so child labor laws is another one. Accessibility, food hunger, um, more legislation to increase accessibility of plant-based foods, and you know by um, by doing that, you'll eliminate uh, some of the issues with food hunger across our country. Land wealth, um, the amount of land that Black farmers. Um, have lost in the last 150 years. I mean, it's it's over 12 million raw acres of land just in the South that Black farmers have lost, and then all the way to today with all the pandemic money and bailouts that were given, Black farmers received less than 1% of it. So I would like to create laws that literally forces that that it, the USDA to prioritize these farmers instead of just just give the lip service about it because it's it's clear that they're still not getting um the same help and then the other part is the electoral college and voting that's going to be a long uphill battle Mm -hmm. to climb but i just don't believe that we'll see a fair country and a fair um, agriculture system until the electoral college is eliminated
0: Mm -hmm. well that's how you got trump right
1: yeah that's exactly (laughs) Trump catered to the farming community and, you know, mm-hmm. with all the different bailouts and, um, and basically he won the electoral college vote.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's a big one. That's definitely a big one that needs to change. Um, but, so you mentioned the bailouts. So let's talk about the bailouts. So how often do they happen? Um, you know, uh, how much money are, are they spending on these bailouts and, um, I guess, yeah, what what are the impacts of them?
1: So bailouts didn't actually happen that often in years past. Um, I would say during Obama, there was like $500 million bailout. Um, During Trump, it started being in the 30 plus billion per year. Wow. And and now uh, through the pandemic, I mean, basically the elite, but specifically Big Ag capitalizes off of any disaster that that exists in the United States. If there's a flood in the Northwest, they're going to create some sort of bailout for all of the farmers before they create a bailout for the public, you know, before they help the public that actually got flooded out, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a hurricane in the South, Big Ag is going to get bailouts and money way before they probably even put the electric electric grid back up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like literally, mm-hmm. so think about Texas with the with the freeze that they had. Big Ag got their take of of help and support way before the people, like people did. Mm-hmm. Um, so they capitalize off of every disaster. Well, we've been in a pandemic for about two, two and a half years and well, what is it? Two years?
0: Yeah, I guess two years
1: um and so there's been a ton of money that has been given to them so during trump it was 18 to 30 something billion per year i think one actually went all the way up to like 43 billion and then in the last year or so there's been a lot of there's been billions of dollars but they've been attached to um specific pandemic money and like loan forgiveness uh stuff so I guess the point i would mention is that i believe that from here on out we're probably going to give them multiple billions multiple times a year um they they really get used to like anytime some some form of help comes in as like a one-time help it never ends up being one time they end up utilizing that and turning it into like um you know status quo so Mm -hmm. um before trump we didn't see bailouts on a yearly basis one of the highest that we saw was like 500 million during obama before that i think there was like 20 million bailout and now we're in the multi-billions um multiple times a year wow that's absolutely unbelievable it's atrocious it's disgusting and especially when they're dumping milk and they're euthanizing pigs because like here's the thing like this is what disgusts me the most. Like if I'm, if I'm giving a pause moment to your listeners, during a pandemic, when a lot of people are losing their jobs, a lot of people are like needing assistance. During that time we had in the beginning, we had a surplus of food.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you have a surplus of anything, the price should drop, right? Mm -hmm. at the grocery store because you have a surplus instead of allowing the price to drop at the store which would have fed a lot of people right if if there was such a surplus that all of a sudden the five dollar meat item turned into a dollar fifty they didn't do that they dumped it out instead to create artificial demand and kept the prices the same at the grocery store it's Mm -hmm. insane it's like the food system and who controls it has no intention on feeding us at all. Like they're yeah. withholding food from us. So that's what I was saying about supply and demand. Like like even if we take away the fact that uh, more of us are not eating animals and let's just say there was a surplus because of the pandemic because, right, nobody was in schools. So none of those schools were were like the contracts of where, you know, the meat goes to those schools for everybody to eat and a bunch of restaurants were closed in the very beginning with such a huge surplus. Like if you have a huge car surplus, if you have your own clothing line and you have a surplus of shirts or beanies you sell to get rid of that product, you reduce the price. But they didn't do that because they don't abide by supply and demand. They look at the waste as a a bargaining chip for a bigger bailout. So literally what I'm saying is, is the the people who control the food system don't even care about actually feeding us because they watched people suffering during one of the worst uh, world crises of our lifetime. And they still kept prices high at the grocery store while just dumping out food in front of everybody dumping out food according to non-vegan to vegan it's like they're dumping out lives that were like killed in vain it was horrific
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's absolutely horrifying and i mean yeah like that's capitalism baby you know like i i made a, a video about um what was going on during the pandemic just kind of um uh, I guess another aspect of the uh, like the shortages that were in the grocery stores. So, you know, everyone was freaking out because we had shortages of meat during the pandemic. Um, because it started with the
1: surplus, then it went into yeah. shortage. And yeah. then went back to surplus and now it's in shortage again.
0: Yeah. But like the shortage happened because, you know, all these poor workers who are in these slaughterhouses are just packed in so tightly in these incredibly unsanitary conditions. And so they were all catching COVID. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the meat production was slowing down. So there was, you know, a shortage, but then these farmers still had all of this excess you know, all of these, quote unquote, excess animals, like these live sentient beings that were just considered excess and they needed to move out as quickly as possible because they had other young, live sentient beings who were growing and needed their space. So they basically just, you know, slaughtered all of these animals, you know, for nothing and and their bodies were just dumped out onto these huge um, fields that they were using as, you know, quote unquote, compost heaps. And then meanwhile, there were people, as you said, in the pandemic who were struggling, who needed food, who needed assistance. And, you know, again, yeah, all of these lives are just taken in vain. And and again, you know, (laughs) none of that was actually getting to to the people. So whether or not we have, you know, whether we have an actual shortage of workers to process the the meat or whether we have an absolute surplus, um, it's just still not getting to the people who need it. We go
1: back sorry to interrupt if we go back to the source Mm -hmm. those workers had to provide themselves with their own like masks and Mm -hmm. equipment Mm -hmm. they would they it came out of their paycheck and or they were supposed to bring it themselves so the slaughterhouses didn't even care in the first place those workers were never put in a safe environment anyway and they were basically discarded i mean I know that they were shutting certain slaughterhouses down because of that. But part of me, because I know so intimately about this industry, I actually believe that they created that fake bottleneck as a way to basically recap on the, on the losses that they originally had Mm. when they had a surplus. That's just how the industry works. It's like, that's why it goes back from surplus to, to, um, surplus to stockpile, to dumping, to shortage, like, those those ebbs and flows that happen in an industry that has been around for so long, it's like, and has so many backup plans, it feels artificial every single time to me. Mm. God, yeah, that
0: would be so sinister. And I, I you know, obviously, it it's yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, an industry, an industry that will will use, you know, eight year old children
0: mm-hmm.
1: is sinister. It yeah. is. And the thing is a lot of it's disconnected and a lot of people don't realize it like in the united states so much of our land is actually brokered off and used to feed other countries livestock like if you think about the soy that's grown here the sorghum that takes up most of our land it's a globalized food system so a global investor from china who owns all these farms which essentially is a backdoor way of owning much of our land and is, is abiding by loosely biased policy that the USDA sets that doesn't even have people come onto their farms or their CAFOs or their slaughterhouses to do any auditing, like ever. But why would that Chinese investor who's living in a high rise ever, would, like one, ever care about, you know, people on the ground here, two, is so, tone deaf and out of touch anyway, right? They don't, they're not, they don't live here. They, they don't live around the devastation of, you know, from those farms. They don't, they don't see what the workers go through, nor do they care.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just absolutely horrifying all around. Um, and it's just, you know, greedy, horrible people doing what is most profitable, profitable to them. Regardless of the consequences for people and for animals and for the planet, like it's just abhorrent. So uh, you mentioned that the pandemic has led to a lot more bailouts. Has it also led to any changes of laws around animal agriculture?
1: Yeah, I mean the pandemic has brought things closer to having conversations about the overall environment and the environmental crisis. The thing is, is like big mega ag. We need to realize that they only get on board with you know with stuff like climate change as soon as they figure out a way to get subsidies from it Mm -hmm. and so there's been a lot of action going on in regards to environmental subsidies and environmental monies and and big ag basically claiming that you know they're going to utilize better practices and reduce you know um, their carbon footprint and all that stuff but If you read the fine lines um, of all of it, I mean, what ends up happening is it's not that they're actually reducing the number of animals that, you know, they're raising, they're not reducing, um, they're, they're not changing their practices that much at all. What they're doing is they're having us buy with our taxes, these like million dollar pieces of equipment that basically convert the animal poop and animal waste into energy. And so then they get these energy subsidies as well. So really, I mean, at this point, our taxes is making uh, the cost for them to produce meat, like almost net positive for them, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Like not only are they not paying for anything, but now with the environmental and energy subsidies, I wouldn't doubt if they're making money before they make money. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah. from so many corners.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so a lot of laws have changed in that arena. Um, I've seen some good proposals for um black indigenous and brown farmers coming through. But again, like I it's so much lip service because again, even through the pandemic, like farmers receive less than one percent of that black farmers receive less than one percent of that pandemic money so but again this happens because politicians are only hearing one side of the story and that's a huge example of why lobbying is so important whether it's for vegans or whatever whatever else you believe in like you have to create a channel of communication based on how that system operates and receives information. Politicians don't look outside the window of City Hall or the window of the White House and look at your sign and read it and say, I'm gonna create a law that does just that. <laughs> they, just don't. they respond to relationships that are backed by money that help them win campaigns and win their seat in whatever level of congress the next time yeah it's so true and they also don't notice you know what
0: you brought at the grocery store and then decide to make a law based on that i mean if anything,
1: that is very true but beyond meat ceo isn't auditing the farmers to see if they've reduced the amount of animals that they've killed either
0: Mm -hmm.
1: do you know what i'm saying like like while politicians aren't aren't in the grocery stores beyond meat and impossible and all of them who've, who've built their giant earnings off of a promise, whether it was literal or not, that, that we're saving animals. Right. Beyond meat isn't going in and necessarily like putting pressure on making sure that animals actually are saved either.
0: hmm
1: so as vegans, that's what I was saying. We're consuming all this beyond meat. We're consuming all those impossible burgers for what? To make both of those companies mega rich. Yeah. of the promise that's romanticized. And yes, I'm sure the founder believed it to be true and wanted it to be true, but it's not true. And so they're becoming mega rich and we're still not seeing animals saved. And so who, so who in our movement is... Is doing the auditing and saying, hey, what the fuck? Mm
0: -hmm. No
1: animals are being saved. Like who? You know what I mean? Nobody.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I get
1: really passionate about it. So I mean, yeah. Trying to be off putting, but it really pisses me off because I'm not a you know millionaire. I'm not a billionaire. And and I see all the ingredients needed for us to get this done. And I just wish. The people that that have capitalized off the vegan movement had the same passion mm-hmm. um, to actualize and get animals to be saved instead of put into stockpiles, instead of dumping them out. If you dump out animals and put them into stockpiles, then you shouldn't get a bailout.
0: Yeah, it's, it's just, it's really disgusting, you know, and I think that it's only recently that anyone... Um, you know, like you and, um, you know, Marie and my, my co-host was, I think one of the first people to kind of point these things out that, yeah, we're, we're not making it down. We do have to look at the numbers and we have to take seriously what kind of political economic system we're operating in. I mean, otherwise we're just spinning our tails. And as you said, just making, making being CEOs rich (laughs) for what?
1: Super rich. Mm -hmm. Like, like it isn't even it, you know, they're unicorn stocks. They are super rich now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, super rich and then start to exploit. I'm not like, I don't want to use them as an example of like, you know, a bad saying that they're a good or bad example. But the point is, is that in our movement, we can't just look at successes based on how well these companies are doing or how many vegans you meet. Like Mm -hmm. this, we really have to do an audit of the inventory, literally act like animals' lives our inventory that we're responsible for and figure out why why the production isn't decreasing and we know that vegan consumerism has gone through the roof and even if someone said well you know sure in the United States it's it's increased but you know other countries it's increased and we export there well then we're still chasing our tails if, if we're not doing activism in you know, Brazil, or in China, or wherever we're exporting to. So it's like, Mm -hmm. we need to be auditing how many animals exist now, and how to, and understanding how to decrease um, production, or we, we, to your point, we are going to be chasing our tails, and we're going to go through our entire lifetime, having veganized a gazillion people, and still seeing an increase in, in meat production. And we're going to write it off as well. You know, the population also increased. It's BS. (laughs) Like like, why can't we bake that into our strategy? Because it's always going to increase.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about um, you know more about lobbying and um, you know that that avenue of activism. I just wanted to ask, since we're talking about the pandemic, if you wanted to say anything about the pandemic and its connection with animal agriculture, because I know we were speaking a bit about that before uh, the podcast. Yeah, I mean,
1: I don't know if people realize this, but whether it's a common cold, the flu, or COVID, common colds are oftentimes multiple types of zoonotic like viruses Mm -hmm. right there are a variation of them and so the thing about the pandemic and its ties to agriculture are it's it's identifying that we are in a critical situation where we raise way too many animals not only do we not have enough resources but these viruses are basically proving that we raise too many animals in places that they shouldn't be so a zoonotic virus that is like is like hopping from animal to animal happens mostly because too many animals are living in areas that they shouldn't be next to other animals that they shouldn't ever be around. And so a great example of that is thinking about like, you know, Chinese agriculture industry. They used to be one of the largest pig exporters in the world. And um, they're dealing with the African swine fever or swine flu right now. And it's literally in parallel. And a lot of people don't know this, but one of the worst animal pandemics of our lifetime, African swine flu is happening in parallel with COVID, which is the worst human virus in our lifetime. And um, it's, like about to hit the Americas. It's it's crossed from China all the way and is now in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And so um, I guess the thing for me is to understand if you're vegan, we need to understand that, you know, these pandemics really do happen because of displacement of livestock. And one of the things that has bothered me a little bit during this time is people buying into, you know, that that the virus was made in a lab, um, because then you then you take away from really how these zoonotic viruses are created. So, sure, maybe it was created in a lab to solve a livestock virus, right? At the end of the day, it still points back to livestock. Like it always points back to livestock. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, even if a lab was trying to solve And create a vaccine for a zoonotic virus and they created a version of it that hopped to humans like at the end of the day, we still always need to point it back. This pandemic always pointed back to livestock and displacement of animals. China, for example, South and Central China um, raises more pigs than anywhere in the world, and they raise these pigs in really humid conditions. And a lot of times in these backyard farms, these pigs live right next to bats, next to other animals that they're not supposed to. And it's like, it was only a matter of time for these viruses to to become powerful and spread amongst a lot of different animals. Um, I was reading an article today about, um, in Michigan, the USDA found that a large percent of deer had COVID antibodies and that it was saying that if they have COVID antibodies, then they probably already had COVID. You don't even hear about this stuff on the news, no. all the animals getting COVID. And so my point is, is like, to that point of displacing animals and, and how many different, a zoonotic virus spreading from hopping from one to the next to the next, it's like, we're I mean, this is terrible. We are living during a time where I believe most of us know that it's connected to the livestock industry, but even worse, it's now, you know, you have animals like deer and mink and and more um, getting their version of COVID and, and perhaps dying and none of us even knowing about it. It's just mm-hmm. wild to me
0: yeah it is absolutely absolutely wild. And it's really terrifying thinking about just you know, the increase in you know, frequency and severity of these zoonotic diseases and you know how rapidly they are mutating and spreading. and um, you know, it just seems to be getting it's like every year there's a new outbreak of something, you know
1: um, Most of the time stems from from livestock. yeah, I mean, even the flu and the Spanish flu started with livestock. and so, the way that they come out and they see the new variants and they come out with new flu vaccines is by watching what variant the animal has. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just, they're just predicting. Right. And what's scary about COVID to me is that, and I had COVID in April of 2020 really early on. So I definitely know firsthand how horrible it made me feel and how scared of it I am now Mm -hmm. um, to get another variant, but, but like, even if you think about the flu, and it's been around for a hundred years and they have vaccines every year. And the vaccines usually predict, I think from like 40 to 70% efficacy, which basically means that of all the predicted strains that it covers 60% of them, right? And that's a hundred years later. And we're sitting here in a novel virus. And I guess my point is, is there's gonna be four to five strains a year for the rest of our lives. Like mm-hmm. that's how big of a deal it is. You know what I mean? And and flu after a hundred years and with that 60% e- efficacy still was taking 35,000 to 70,000 lives in the United States, like a hundred years yeah. later. And mm-hmm. that's all from livestock. Yeah. And even like, again, the common cold, I've had common colds that are as bad as the flu sometimes, And I'm like, but it's just a common cold. My immune system must not be that strong for some reason, but it's not true. It, those common colds, if you look up, if you look up what's in a common cold, you'll find out all these different multiple viruses that are all zoonotic.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's infuriating actually. It's it's really really infuriating. Um because it's just so normalized for people, right? The people are just like, "Oh, well, of course we of course we're going to have livestock, right? So of course it's just a uh, it's just something we have to deal with is getting these illnesses." But I mean, it's yeah, it's just absolutely ridiculous to think how unnatural it is to have so many animals, you know, so many livestock animal bodies um just, you know, forced together in these completely unnatural and inhumane spaces that are just, yeah, absolute breeding grounds for these things that then, as you said, we have to deal with for the rest of our lives and that that do take so many of us and that have, I mean, with COVID have already taken so many
1: lives, right?
0: Oh, it's
1: just... hence that point of animal lives. <laughs> right, yeah. news isn't reporting that. So if all of those deers are showing, deer are showing antibodies, how many... Mm-hmm died from the illness and how many other animals are dying from from the illness and Mm -hmm. you know it it's like i i don't think that we're hearing the full story when it comes to all of the hops that this virus has actually made because that's the point of the virus it's zoonotic it's to hop from from animal to animal to animal. And so I just think that there's a bigger picture story that we don't even realize about how many animals have also been affected by COVID, both, both perhaps wild animals and our companions. Mm. And if you look at like zoos, zoos are giving the vaccine to many animals from tigers to gorillas, like that to me signals that, that there's more to it than we realize, or they wouldn't, mm-hmm. they wouldn't give them the vaccine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like if, if cats and tigers couldn't get it, why are they giving the, t- the, the zoo tigers the vaccine? If gorillas and monkeys couldn't get it, why are they giving them the vaccine? You yeah. Know yeah. Like, like to me, it's signaling that many, many more animals are affected than we realize. hmm
0: yeah, which is, again, just extremely horrifying. Um, I mean, just in in the fact that, you know, it's horrifying to have sentient beings die in that way. But I mean, we're also at a time right now with the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis that we're experiencing, like, you know, basically the sixth mass extinction. And then we're creating through our practices these these zoonotic viruses that are then taking out so many more animals right i mean it's just devastating
1: and it all is sourced back to a terrible agriculture policy that you know is it has been so corporatized that they just don't care about all the suffering that happens i mean Mm-hmm. This isn't the first time we've had a climate crisis. I mean, we had a dust bowl that was caused by farmers that lasted from 1930 to 1936. That literally looked like an apocalypse for six years, where they depleted all of the nutrients in the in the in the earth from over farming, and essentially it looked like a dust storm. Um, I read a book about how the I grew up in Oklahoma too, but I didn't even know this living there. But Oklahoma and the Midwest, the prairies are described as almost like a, a lush flower forest with just tons of of biodiversity that if you go there today, it's like, it's just dirt and grass, like it's all gone.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: um, this is, I guess, like the climate crisis is also sourced back to the agriculture industry. And it's not, it's just not the first time they did it. To this
0: country, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, yeah, just absolutely. I mean, it's just hard to even wrap your mind around, you know, the horror of it all. Um, but you know, I guess let's let's shift gears and talk about how do we fight this, right? So, um, you talked a bit about how you entered the world of lobbying, um, but but talk to us more about you know the possibilities this opens, and you know what kind of successes and challenges are you facing in doing this kind of work.
1: Yeah, I mean, going into it, I knew we just needed to get somebody in the conversation, you know, get a seat at the table of being able to have to either just be listening or to have a say. Um, I didn't know, like where it would take us. And I didn't know exactly how many lobbyists we would need to accomplish, you know, um, significant change. We started with, One lobbyist who definitely had great ideas, and we we then were able to scale to a larger lobbying firm. Um, And through that, the one thing I would say that we learned, and that I kind of knew already, is you know get these laws passed, you have to have bipartisan um, you know approval. And so while we have a lot of these left ideas, you have to make, you have to create legislation that everybody agrees on. So you can't just come in and get Cory Booker as a sponsor and expect something to pass. Like once it gets pigeonholed into the vegan environmental arena, it it becomes harder. So you have to create legislation that everybody agrees on. With that said, we originally created legislation that was an at-risk farmer transition program. And the idea was to start subsidizing and getting money to instead of just throwing bailout money um, to farmers that were failing, give them opportunity to transition to plant-based farming. Um, We quickly realized trying to get a a full piece of legislation was gonna be a longer turn than, than adding language to existing legislation. But the point is, is we actually have already been successful of adding language to legislation. And that was just with one lobbyist firm. And that to me is an eye opener. Because what that means is, is that a lot of times in a lot of different ways, we get paralyzed and scared because we're not as big as we think we are. And the reality is in the lobbying world, we just need to be In their faces, and we need to be like talking to them and providing a different narrative and letting them know like who their constituents are and what we believe in. And again, that's why I was saying like there's just there's too much focus, in my opinion, on the street protest. Like I I want people to just diversify and and realize you can have those conversations with your, you know, legislator. You can have those conversations and convince politicians right again it's tough in this community to say like don't focus too much on street protest it's not that I don't want someone to do not do what they love but the hyper focus of it is distracting us from like other tactics that have a real Great return on investment, and lobbying is one of them. So we've already had a great success. Um, That's just with one lobbyist. Um, We hope to continue to scale. And for me, I want to go past just helping farmers. I really like I had that list I had mentioned about workers' rights and then small farmer rights um, specific to farmers of color, and then like the child labor laws and accessibility and food hunger is a big one for me that. I really want to, um, you know, to continue on that path. The other thing is lobbying taught me and our group is that you can't just have an offensive strategy. So offense would be creating legislation and creating language. We have to have enough lobbyists to also have a defensive strategy. So as we scale, we need to play defense. All of those different proposed laws that the other side puts into play, like we have to be in the mix of that, like early, right? We can't just be hearing about it later. And so we need to scale and grow so that we have an army of lobbyists that can both push, um, different themes of legislation that cover both humans, animals, and, um, you know, plant-based economy. And then the other side that's defending, um, more, uh, you know, rigged policies and, and more policies that, that push out, um, you know, uh, diversity in farming and, and are, are, are negatively impacting animals and, and their and workers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, I, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't even have thought of that. I mean, obviously if I was doing it, I, I might've, but, um, I hadn't up to this point thought about, oh, right. Yeah. You, you do have to play defense as well and that of course it makes sense that you need to have um you know a team of people who can be on the ball because i'm sure i'm sure uh you know more white wing like these wealthy white farmers that you're talking about um are constantly pushing forward you know shit that's (laughs) that's just extremely exploitative or that's going to make things so much worse
1: for sure i would just i would just pile on white farmers really it's the white farm investor he doesn't ever mm-hmm. step foot on the farm he is mm-hmm. living in Santa Monica or living in New York City and he has a a low paid farmhand that manages his farm and undocumented workers or um sure sure maybe they are um legal non-citizens working but um the white farmer is really the white farmer investor in this mm. situation
0: yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense well i mean that's great i'm I'm so you know thrilled to hear that you've been doing so well um you know even with just the one firm that you you said you were using so that's absolutely amazing so i wanted to ask how listeners could get involved uh you know uh, uh, i guess what do you need uh from us from listeners um Uh, How can we support this work? Um, How can we, you know, maybe get involved in it in whatever way possible? And then lastly, I was going to ask, you know, if if there are any other forms of activism that you would suggest for people with this kind of more broader total liberation perspective?
1: Yeah, so um, first off, it just depends on what someone's socioeconomic condition is. If you have the money to support us and become a member, you can become a member on agriculturefairnessalliance.org that membership goes towards expanding our lobbying efforts. So, um, you know, our hope is to hire, uh, continue hiring more lobbyists so that we can start pushing um, towards multiple things simultaneously. Um, So agriculturefairnessalliance.org is where someone can become a member. When it comes to Liberation 360, we're still in the launch phase of that, like I, you know, I'm gonna give a little personal piece. I I lost one of my dogs like five months ago, and I sort yeah. of pause on like stuff. And the only reason I'm saying that is kind of like I think all of us as animal lover lovers, we we have animals ourselves, and then we're we're doing activism for animals. And I mean, losing mine shook me for a mm-hmm. while, and I'm only um, even in this moment right now, you know that I had mentioned that I couldn't do it for a while. And me talking to you now is me saying like, I'm finally like coming up for air to, to really go hard at things again, because I had been so emotional from you know from her passing. She was 16 and a half years old. So she was around my entire adult life. So Liberation 360, we're gonna have a website launch for, and there will be do- place to donate there as well. Um, it will be, a a little bit different so you'll have the lobbying arm that is like here's money towards the lobbyists and and then we have an education arm which is going to be we need to start educating people about all of these systems so that even if they're not vegan but perhaps realize the horrific effects of the system so like maybe they're maybe they're um, big on workers rights, or maybe they're big on, you know, um, helping communities that live near nearby these CAFOs. We have to educate those people. And so um, that will be a form of activism that I hope to start doing educational series to even other nonprofit groups. So think of think of Greenpeace for example right it's a it's like an environmental adjacent um group and perhaps they don't understand the intertwinings of the politics of the food system and so we, i would like to have liberation 360 start educating those groups so that we can we can create a bigger movement based on collaboration mm-hmm. so those are the two financial ways to get involved if you have time, um, to volunteer with our groups, we're happy to, you know, see if, um, you know, whatever you have time to do fits with what, something that we need and we'd be happy to work together. I will say we only want volunteers who are anti-oppression in nature, um, because we're not animals only groups. And I I think, you know, that like, we're not just, it's not just like, animals only. We're, we're based on the big picture of all sentient beings and making sure that we create an equitable farm system. So volunteers are great. Um, and then lastly, if you don't really know where to start, but you do want to perhaps speak at your local city council, the best way to do that is to understand their schedule and perhaps sit in on a few of their meetings and see what the topics are, they do bring up topics. So an example is in my city, they actually do have a school program where they um, they try to equit- equitably provide plant-based options. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that local lobbying, even if you're just one person, can be huge, right? Mm-hmm. So getting involved to figure out like, how the school systems are supplied. For example, you know, um, a lot of these dairy companies make I heard the number was like 40 to 50% of their earnings come from their contracts with schools. Wow. So it isn't even that these kids are all drinking it, right. It's just that there's a contract Mm -hmm. that says this, how many students we have. So this is what we need to make available to them. So um, I think that would be a unique way to sort of get your, dip your toes into your own personal lobbying. But the truth is when it comes to federal lobbying, we're not the right people to be to be federal lobbyists. Like mm-hmm. you want to get somebody who lives and breathes it and who's been doing it for 10 20 years and has a rolodex of relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So so when it comes to federal lobbying, being a lobbying member with our group is, you know, would be the way to go to affect the federal change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then educationally, I mean, following me, um, I'm like I said, I'm like coming up for air now and I'll probably be posting a lot more about um, current events uh, based on the farm system. You always want to keep your eye on the farm bill um, that happens every four to five years. Um, you want to keep your eye on a lot of this climate and environmental stuff because you don't want to be saying things that don't that don't actualize so you know, um, a lot of, a lot of this stuff that is being said in the environmental legislation makes it sound like we're going to be solving a lot of problems and it's just, it's just not true. So, um, I would say start, um, getting a pulse on what's going on with, with legislation as it relates to environment and really digging deep to, to understand like if, if these things will really solve or help, um, help the world or if it's just another way for big ag to take, you know, more subsidies to claim that they are environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, so we'll link uh, all of these links in our show notes so people can uh find those there and um get involved if you uh have the the time or the money. That would be absolutely wonderful. Um so thank you so much. Yeah, I wanted to say uh, you know, I am sorry again to hear about uh your your dog, Callie. I I you know saw you post just beautiful videos and photos and you look like you had such a wonderful connection. And, um, yeah, I also lost, um, our, our family pet that was really dear to me, uh, last year during the pandemic. And it's just, it's, it's so difficult, you know, it's, they, they really are just members of your family and, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's so
1: much to get over, you know. I feel like people there the people that know me know it happened and are and know I've been kind of missing in action yeah. the people who don't know me that perhaps just know the organizations are probably like why are they so quiet are they really doing mm-hmm. the lobbyist and the group and you know co-founder are, are definitely still working very hard just for me and my social media president presence mm-hmm. i just took a pause and i just am pointing out the reason i brought that up on the show is that is that it was a very severe struggle and I had to work my full-time job obviously I couldn't pause that but Mm. anything extracurricular outside of that my just my you know my heart was just not capable and Mm -hmm. so it took me a while since May and so now that I'm sort of coming up for air, you're going to see a lot more, um, momentum back on, on the education that I do to the movement. And I appreciate you waiting on me and I appreciate, um, you know, your fan base and listeners, um, you know, to give me a platform to discuss, you know, the food system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm great that you are. I guess as you say, coming up for air. And um, yeah, everyone should follow Vegan Batgirl on Instagram. Um, or, or I guess you're you're everywhere, right? You're on TikTok. I
1: haven't put a lot on TikTok, but it's same thing. It, it was just the timing thing with Calia. Yeah. I I want to start using it as an educational um, on the food system. Um, you know, mm. uh, and do videos there. So we'll see.
0: yeah wonderful but yeah everyone follow uh vegan back girl um yeah you're just always putting out really really important educational content that everyone should be checking out so thank you so much for coming on this was such a great conversation i really appreciate your time and um yeah i hope that a lot of the listeners uh get involved and and help support your work so just thanks again for coming
1: perfect thanks so much